Chapter Seventeen of the Gorilla Hunters by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adele Pinerales. Chapter Seventeen: We visit a natural menagerie, see wonderful sights, and meet with strange adventures. We observed on this journey that the elephants which we met in our farthest north point were considerably smaller than those farther to the south. Yet, though smaller animals, their tusks were much larger than those of the south. The weight of those tusks varied from twenty to fifty pounds, and I saw one that was actually upwards of one hundred pounds in weight, equal, in fact, to the weight of a big boy or a little man. Such tusks, however, are rare. At nights, when we encamped near to a river or pool of water, we saw immense numbers of elephants come down to drink and enjoy themselves. They seemed, in fact, to be intoxicated with delight, if not with water, for they screamed with joy, and filling their trunks with water, spurted it over themselves and each other in copious showers. Of course, we never disturbed them on such occasions, for we came to the conclusion that it would be the height of barbarity and selfishness to spoil the pleasure of so many creatures merely for the sake of a shot. Frequently we were wont to go after our supper to one of those ponds, when we chanced to be in the immediate neighborhood of one, and lying concealed among the bushes, watched by the light of the moon the strange habits and proceedings of the wild creatures that came there to drink. The hours thus passed to me were the most interesting by far that I spent in Africa. There was something so romantic in the kind of scenery, in the dim mysterious light, and in the grand troops of wild creatures that came there in all the pith and fire of untamed freedom to drink. It was like visiting a natural menagerie on the most magnificent scale, for in places where water is scarce, any pool that may exist is the scene of constant and ever-changing visits during the entire night. In fact, I used to find it almost impossible to tear myself away, although I knew that repose was absolutely needful, in order to enable me to continue the journey on the succeeding day, and I am quite certain that had not Peterkin and Jack often dragged me off in a jocular way by main force, I should have remained there all night, and have fallen asleep probably in my ambush. One night of this kind that we passed I shall never forget. It was altogether a remarkable and tremendously exciting night, and as it is a good type of the style of night entertainment to be found in that wild country, I shall describe it. It happened on a Saturday night. We were then travelling through a rather dry district, and had gone a whole day without tasting water. As evening approached, we came, to our satisfaction, to a large pond of pretty good water, into which we ran knee-deep, and filling our caps with water, drank long and repeated draughts. Then we went into a place of jungle about a quarter of a mile distant, and made our encampment, intending to rest there during the whole of the Sabbath. I may mention here that it was our usual custom to rest on the Sabbath day. This we did because we thought it right, and we came here long to know that it was absolutely needful, for on this journey southward we all agreed that as life and death might depend on the speed with which we travelled, we were quite justified in continuing our journey on the Sabbath but we found ourselves at the end of the second week so terribly knocked up that we agreed to devote the whole of the next sabbath to repose this we did accordingly and found the utmost benefit from it and we could not avoid remarking in reference to this on the care and tenderness of our heavenly father who has so arranged that obedience to his command should not only bring a peculiar blessing to our souls but so to speak a natural and inevitable advantage to our bodies these reflections seem to me to throw some light on the passage the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath but as this is not the place for theological disquisition, I shall not refer further to that subject. Not having then to travel on the following day, we made up our minds to spend an hour or two in a place of concealment near the margin of this pond, and I secretly resolved that I would spend the whole night there with my notebook, for the moon we knew would be bright, 
and make a soft pillow of leaves on which I might drop and go to sleep when my eyes refused any longer to keep open. The moon had just begun to rise when we finished our suppers and prepared to go to our post of observations. We took our rifles with us, of course, for although we did not intend to shoot, having more than sufficient food already in camp, we could not tell but that at any moment those weapons might be required for the defense of our lives. Makarooroo had been too long accustomed to see wild animals to understand the pleasure we enjoyed in merely staring at them, so he was left in charge of our camp. "'Now, then,' said Peterkin, as we left the encampment, "'hurrah for the menagerie!' "'You may well call it that,' said Jack, "'for there's no lack of variety.' "'Are we to shoot?' inquired Peterkin. "'Better not, I think. We don't require meat, and there's no use in murdering the poor things. What a splendid scene!' We halted to enjoy the view for a few seconds. The forest out of which we had emerged bordered an extensive plain, which was dotted here and there with scattered groups of trees, which gave to the country an exceedingly rich aspect. In the midst of these the pond lay glistening in the soft moonlight like a sheet of silver. It was surrounded on three sides by low bushes and a few trees. On the side next to us it was open and fully exposed to view. The moonlight was sufficiently bright to render every object distinctly visible, yet not so bright as to destroy the pleasant feeling of mysterious solemnity that pervaded the whole scene. It was wonderfully beautiful. I felt almost as if I had reached a new world. Continuing our walk, we quickly gained the bushes that fringed the margin of the pool, which was nowhere more than thirty yards broad, and on our arrival heard the hoofs of several animals that we had scared away, clattering on the ground as they were treated. "'There they go already!' cried Jack. "'Now let us look for a hillock of some kind on which to take up our position.' "'You shall not have to look far,' said I, "'for here seems a suitable spot ready at our hand.' "'Your eyes are sharp tonight, Ralph,' observed Peterkin. "'The plate's is splendid, so let's to work.' Laying down our rifles, we drew our hunting knives, and began to cut down some of the underwood on the top of a small hillock that rose a little above the surrounding bushes, and commanded a clear view of the entire circumference of the pond. We selected this spot for the double reason that it was a good point of observation, and a safe retreat, as animals coming to the pond to drink, from whatever quarter they might arrive, would never think of ascending a hillock covered with bushes if they could pass round it. Having cleared a space sufficiently large to hold us, leaving, however, a thin screen of shrubs in front through which we intended to peep, we strewed the ground with leaves and lay down to watch for it with our loaded rifles beside us. We felt certain of seeing good many animals, for even during the process of preparing our unlace of retreat several animals had arrived, and were scared away by the noise we made. Presently we heard footsteps approaching. "'There's something!' whispered Peterkin. "'Aye,' turned Jack. "'What I like about this sort of thing is your uncertainty as to what may turn up. "'It's like deep-sea fishing. Hist! Look out!' "'The steps were rapid. "'Sometimes they clattered over what appeared to be pebbly ground. "'Then they became muffled as the animal crossed a grassy spot. "'At last it trotted out of the shade of the bushes, "'directly opposite us in the moonlight, "'and showed itself to be a beautiful little antelope of the longhorn kind, "'with a fawn by its side. "'The two looked timidly round for a few seconds, "'and snuffed the air as if they feared concealed enemies, "'and then—' trotting into the water, slaked their thirst together. I felt as great pleasure seeing them take a long, satisfactory draught as if I had been swallowing it myself, and hoped they would continue there for some time, but they had barely finished when the rapid gallop of several animals was heard, and scared them away instantly. The newcomers were evidently heavy brutes, for their tread was loud and quite distinct, as compared with the steps of the antelopes. A few seconds sufficed to disclose them to our expectant eyes. A large herd of giraffes trotted to the water's edge and began to drink. It was a splendid sight to behold these graceful creatures stooping to drink, 
and then raising their heads haughtily to a towering height as they looked about from side to side. In the course of a couple of hours we saw elands, springboks, news, leopards, and an immense variety of wild creatures, some of which fawned on and played with each other, while others fought and bellowed until the woods resounded with the din. While we were silently enjoying the sight, and I attempting to make a few entries in my notebook, our attention was attracted to a cracking of the bushes, close to the right side of our hillock. "'Look out!' whispered Jack, but the warning was scarcely needed, for he instinctively seized our rifles. A moment after our hearts leapt violently as we heard a crashing step that betokened the approach of some huge creature. "'Are we safe enough here?' I whispered to Jack. "'Safe enough if we keep still.' we shall have to cut and run if an elephant chances to get sight of us. I confess that at that moment I felt uneasy. The hillock on the summit of which we lay was only a place of comparative safety, because no animal was likely to ascend an elevated spot without an object in view. And as the purpose of all the nocturnal visitors to that pond was the procuring of water, we did not think it possible that any of them would approach unpleasantly near to our citadel. But if any wild beast should take a fancy to do so, there was nothing to prevent him and the slight screen of bushes by which we were surrounded would certainly have been no obstacle in the way. A hunter in the African wilds, however, has not much time to think. Danger is usually on him in a moment. We had barely time to full-cock our rifles when the bushes near us were trodden down, and a huge black rhinoceros sauntered slowly up to us. So near was he that we could have sprung out from our hiding-place and caught hold of him had we chosen to do so. This enormous, unwieldy monster seemed to me so large that he resembled an elephant on short legs, and in the dim, mysterious moonlight I could almost fancy him to be one of those dreadful monsters of the antediluvian world of which we read so much in those days of geological research. I held my breath and glanced at my comrades. They lay perfectly motionless, with their eyes fixed on the animal, which hesitated on approaching our hillock. My blood almost stagnated in my veins. I thought that he must have observed us or smelt us, and was about to charge. He was only undecided as to which side of the hillock he should pass by on his way to the pond. Turning to the left, he went down to the water with a heavy, rolling gait, crushing the shrubs under his ponderous feet in a way that filled me with an exalted idea of his tremendous power. I breathed freely again, and felt as if a mighty load had been lifted off me. From the suppressed sighs vented by my comrades, I judged that they also had experienced somewhat similar relief. We had not, however, had time to utter a whisper before our ears were assailed by the most tremendous noise that we had yet heard. It came from the opposite side of the pool, as if a great torrent were rushing towards us. Presently a black billow seemed to burst out of the side of the jungle and roll down the sloping bank of the pond. "'Elephants!' exclaimed Jack. "'Impossible,' said I. "'They must be buffaloes.' At that instant they emerged into the full blaze of the moon and showed themselves to be a herd of full-grown elephants, with a number of calves. There could not have been fewer than one hundred on the margin of the pond. From the closeness of their ranks and their incessant movements, I found it impossible to count their numbers accurately. This magnificent army began to drink and throw water about, waving their trunks and trumpeting shrilly at the same time with the utmost delight. The young ones especially seemed to enjoy themselves immensely, and I observed that their mothers were very attentive to them, caressing them with their trunks and otherwise showing great fondness for their offspring. "'I say!' whispered Peterkin. What a regiment of cavalry these fellows would make, mounted by gorillas armed with scythe blades for swords and highland claymores for dirks. Aye, and cannon revolvers in their pockets, added Jack. But look, that hideous old rhinoceros, he has been standing there for the last two minutes like a rock, staring intently across the water at the elephants. Hush, said I, whisper softly, he may hear us. 
"'There is something else on our side,' whispered Peterkin, pointing to the right of our hillock. "'Don't you see it? There, against the—I do believe it's another giraffe.' "'So it is. Keep still. His ears are sharp,' muttered Jack, examining the lock of his rifle. "'Come, come,' said I. "'No shooting, Jack. You know we came to see not to shoot.' "'Very true. But it's not every day one gets such a close shot at a giraffe. I must procure a specimen for you, Ralph.' Jack smiled as he said this, and raised his rifle. Peterkin, at the same moment, quietly raised his, saying, "'If that's your game, my boy, then here goes at the rhinoceros. Don't worry your aim. We've got lots of time.' As I waited for the reports with breathless attention, I was much struck at that moment by the singularity of the circumstances in which we were placed. On our left stood the rhinoceros, not fifteen yards off. On our right, the giraffe raised his long neck above the bushes, about twenty yards distant, apparently uncertain whether it was safe to advance to the water while in front lay the lake, reflecting the soft clear moonlight, and beyond that the phalanx of elephants, enjoying themselves vastly. I had but two moments to take it all in at a glance, for Jack said, Now, in a low tone, and instantly the loud report of two rifles thundered out upon the night air. Words cannot convey, and the reader certainly cannot conceive, any idea of the trumpeting, roaring, crashing, shrieking, and general hubbub that succeeded to the noise of our firearms. It seemed as if the wild beasts of twenty menageries had simultaneously commenced to smash the woodwork of their cages, and to dash out upon each other in mingled fury and terror. For not only was the crashing of boughs and bushes and smaller trees quite terrific, but the thunderous tread of the large animals was absolutely awful. We were thoroughly scared, for in addition to all this, from the midst of the horrid turmoil there came forth a royal roar close behind us that told of a lion having been secretly engaged in watching our proceedings and we shuddered to think that, but for our firing, he might have sprung upon us as we lay there, little dreaming of his presence. Since our last adventure with the King of Beasts, Makaruru had entertained us with many anecdotes of the daring of lions, especially of those monsters that are termed man-eaters, so that when we heard the roar above referred to, we all three sprang to our feet and faced about with the utmost alacrity. So intent were we on looking out for this dreadful foe, for we had made up our minds that it must be a man-eating lion, that we were utterly indifferent to the other animals. But they were not indifferent to us, for the wounded rhinoceros, catching sight of us as we stood with our backs toward him, charged at once up the hillock. To utter three simultaneous yet fearfully distinct yells of terror, spring over the low parapet of bushes, and fly like the wind in three different directions was the work of a moment. In dashing madly down the slope, my foot was caught in a creeping shrub, and I fell heavily to the earth. The fall probably saved my life for before I could rise the rhinoceros sprang completely over me in its headlong charge. So narrow was my escape that the edge of one of its ponderous feet alighted on the first joint of the little finger of my left hand and crushed it severely. Indeed, had not the ground been very soft, it must infallibly have bruised it off altogether. The moment it had passed I jumped up, and turning round, ran in the opposite direction. I had scarcely gone ten paces, when a furious growl behind me, and the grappling sound as of two animals in deadly conflict, followed by a fierce howl, led me to conclude that the lion and the rhinoceros had unexpectedly met each other, and in their brief conflict the former had come off second best. But I gave little heed as to that. My principal thought at that moment was my personal safety, so I ran on as fast as I could in the direction of our encampment, for which point, I had no doubt, my companions would also make. I had not run far when the growl of a lion, apparently in front, caused me to stop abruptly. Uncertain as to the exact position of the brute, I turned off to one side, and retreated cautiously and with as little noise as possible, yet with a feeling of anxiety lest he should spring upon me unawares. 
but my next step showed me that the lion was otherwise engaged. Pushing aside a few leaves that obstructed my vision, I suddenly beheld a lion in the midst of an open space, crouched as if for a spring. Instinctively I threw forward the muzzle of my rifle, but a single glance showed me that his tail, not his head, was towards me. On looking beyond, I observed the head and shoulders of Jack, who, like the lion, was also in a crouching position, staring fixedly in the face of his foe. They were both perfectly motionless, and there could not have been more than fifteen or twenty yards between them. The true position of affairs at once flashed across me. Jack, in his flight, had unwittingly run almost into the jaws of the lion, and I now felt convinced that this must be a second lion, for it could not have been the one that was disturbed by the rhinoceros, as I had been running directly away from the spot where these two brutes had met. Jack had crouched at once. We had often talked over our campfire of such an event as unexpectedly meeting a lion face to face, and Peterkin, who knew a great deal about such affairs, had said that in such a case a man's only chance was to crouch and stare the lion out of countenance. We laughed at this, but he assured us positively that he had himself seen it done to tigers in India, and added that if a man turned and ran his destruction would be certain. To fire straight into the face of a lion in such a position would be exceedingly dangerous, for while the bullet might kill, it was more than probable it would glance off the bone of his forehead, which was presented at an angle to the hunter. The best thing to do, he said, was to stare steadily at the creature until it began to wince, which, if not a wounded beast, it would certainly do, and then, when it turned slowly round, to slink away, take aim at its heart, and fire instantly. The moon was shining full in Jack's face, which wore an expression of intense ferocity I had never before witnessed, and had not believed it possible that such a look could have been called up by him. The lower part of his face, being shrouded in his black beard, was undiscernible, but his cheeks and forehead were like cold marble. His dark brows were compressed so tightly they seemed knotted, and beneath them his eyes glittered with an intensity that seemed to me supernatural. Not a muscle moved. His gaze was fixed, and it was not difficult to fancy that he was actually, instead of apparently, petrified. I could not, of course, observe the wishes of the lion, and to say truth I had no curiosity on that point, for just then it occurred to me that I was directly in the line of fire, and that if my friend missed the lion there was every probability of him killing me. I was now in an agony of uncertainty. I knew not what to do. If I were to endeavor to get out of the way, I might perhaps cause Jack to glance aside, and so induce the lion to spring. If, on the other hand, I should remain where I was, I might be shot. In this dilemma it occurred to me that, as the jack was a good shot, and the lion was very close, it was extremely unlikely that I should be hit, so I resolved to bide my chance, and offering up a silent prayer, awaited the issue. It was not long of coming. The fixed gaze of a bold human eye cowed at last even the king of the woods. The lion slowly and almost imperceptibly rose, and sidled gently round, with the intention, doubtless, of bounding into the jungle. I saw that if it did so it would pass very close to me, so I cocked both barrels and held my piece in readiness. The click of my locks attracted the lion's attention. Its head was turned slightly round. At that instant Jack's rifle sprang to his shoulder, and the loud crack of its report was mingled with and drowned by the roar of the lion, as he sprang with a terrible bound, not past me but straight towards me. I had no time to aim, but throwing the gun quickly to my shoulder, drew both triggers at once. I had forgotten in my perturbation that I carried Peterkin's heavy elephant rifle, charged with an immense quantity of powder and a couple of six-ounce balls. My shoulder was almost dislocated by the recoil, and I was fairly knocked head over heels. A confused sound of yells and roars filled my ears for a minute. I struggled to collect my faculties. "'Hullo! Jack! Ralph! Where are you?' shouted a voice that I well knew to be that of Peterkin. "'Hurrah! I'm coming! Don't give in! I've killed him! 
The rhinoceros is dead as a doornail. Where have you? I heard no more, having swooned away. End of chapter 17. Recording by Adelde Pinoroles.